Good morning, Midtown. You guys can slowly grab a seat. That'd be great. Now, I certainly don't know everyone yet, but my name is Justin Christopher, one of the pastors here. Thank you for braving through the traffic to get here. Was just exchanging texts with my wife who can't get here, so I know there's others probably in that condition, so thanks for doing so. Uh, Want to give a special welcome to anyone who's visiting, uh, particularly if you're new to Midtown. We're really glad that you're here. I hope that you met someone new during that time or that you would fill out the connection card just to let us know a little bit about yourselves, and that actually goes for everyone. Filling out that card and dropping it in the offering when we do that later is a great way for us to know kind of what things you're interested in and how we can follow up with you. We'd love for you to do that. Um, I've been enjoying this fast, so thanks, Justin, for sharing your story. Um, have you all been enjoying fasting together for a week in various ways? So no claps. Everyone's like, why is there food back there right now? That's not appropriate. Um, I know we're all fasting from different things, but it's been real fun just to kind of enter into day number eight. I hope that you're talking about it with your friends and your communities and your Midtown communities. Um, It's a great way for us to actually add to our fellowship by talking about what God's teaching us as we do this fast together. We're starting day number, uh, week number two. If you haven't picked up one of these prayer guides, I would really recommend that you get one. It's really cool. It's something that we're all using to pray together. So on the way out, grab one. It's, it's been fun for me, I know, like every morning to be able to pray these prayers and know that there's all of you guys out there, many of you praying the exact same prayers, reading the same scriptures, praying for our church. And this week we start to move into gospel saturation locally, so we're going to be praying for all the things our church is doing and stuff that's happening in the city. And so it's a real neat thing. I know for me personally, I don't know about you, but it's, it's like developed a real in, increased hunger for God lately. Um, really has for me, and, and, and honestly, an increased repentance. Like a lot of stuff's kind of been brought up to the surface where I'm recognizing some places that I really need to grow, and that's part of why we do this. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. It's not too late to start, so if you feel like, oh, I didn't know about this, well, join us for the last two weeks. That would be great too. So we're entering or halfway through our season of fasting, and we're ending today our season of Habakkuk. Have you all enjoyed the book of Habakkuk? This little minor prophet, three chapters wrestling with God about justice in the world, a you know, thousands-year-old book, but so contemporary to the issues that we have. And what we've been talking about kind of broadly is in this whole book of Habakkuk, how do we find contentment in troubling times? Habakkuk was wrestling with God. Why are you allowing this injustice? Why would you let an unjust nation rule over a more righteous nation? And ultimately, he gets to this place of contentment where he believes that God's in control and that God cares And that there's a bigger picture that he doesn't see, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and that brings him to a place of contentment. And I love chapter 3. I told you several weeks ago, maybe months ago, that these verses that we're about to read were some of the most significant in my life and actually helping me get free from a a period of depression that I was in. So why don't we read them again together, this this ending song of Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there's no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food. Though there's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, like the feet of a deer, enables me to tread on the heights. So Habakkuk finds himself finally at this place of believing that God's in control, that God cares, there's a bigger story that's happening, and he's able to sing this song and mean it from his heart. And I've been tremendously helped by it this week. 
Um, I don't know about you guys if you like Tim Keller. Uh, he's a guy that I, I love to listen to. I know probably a lot of you listen to or, or read. He's such an incredible theologian. He actually did uh, Habakkuk, taught Habakkuk a couple years ago at his church in New York. And Jake and I were personally, personally like really impacted by the last message that he gives. So I'm going to give a little teaser to say we, we stole this from Tim, part of it. <laughs> so he, uh, he used this verse right here, and he brought up something really interesting that maybe I'd never thought of. Think about these things that he's saying he could do without, the grapes, the olives, the crops, the cattle, the sheep. And he pointed out that this was their economic engine. This is what produced their economy. And so in a real way, what Habakkuk's saying, not just the outside circumstances of war or other things, in a very real way, even if I had no money, even if I was in a scarce place and not knowing how I was going to pay the next bill, even then I would trust you. And because money is such an important and sometimes an idol in our culture, we thought, like Tim did, we should address this same way, to think about how can we actually continue our contentment, and even a step beyond contentment. If we're saying contentment is, is an evidence that we've really come to believe that God is good, that He's in control and He cares, and we have this contentment, no matter our circumstances, what about financially? What would be an evidence of financial contentment? If we really believe that God was in control and that God cared, we would be generous people. And so we want to talk today about generosity, particularly how can we be generous even in scarce times? Because that's an evidence of contentment that Habakkuk would have had and one that we would have had. So yes, we're kind of talking about money today. Sorry. Anybody new for first week? Don't raise your hand, but I'm sorry. Anybody bring a friend? You're like, crap. Like, why are you? Dang it. I didn't invite some of my friends today because I knew what was happening. I was like, ah, you guys can come next week. So I'm going to talk out of two sides of my mouth. One side says, sorry, and the other side says, not really, <laughs> because money is so important in our society, and, and the way that we deal with money directly is related to our spiritual lives and our heart. That's why 15% of Jesus' teachings were on money. That's why 2,350 verses in the Bible on money. That's more than there are verses on prayer and faith combined. Isn't that crazy? So, yes, I'm sorry, but no, I'm not. <laughs> and I think this is going to be really uh, helpful for us. Two other little concessions. One is that we're a family. Like, we really believe when Justin said that we're a family loved and served by God, committed to love and serve each other in Austin with God. We believe we're a family. And as a family, particularly Midtown Partners, something we should do. And so this is really like a family conversation. And so I hope that you guys would see that. And one last concession, Jake was supposed to teach this week, not me. <laughs> Just saying. About two weeks ago, he's like, oh, shoot, Krista booked us a place. I forgot that we've had this place that we were going for a little getaway. So, sure, Jake, yeah, okay. So here we are. Um, let me tell you where I'm going, and then I'll pray, and you guys can pray for me. That would be really helpful. And what I want to do is I want to show two examples in Scripture, one that Paul points out and one that Jesus points out, of this exact same thing of a people who in their scarcity, in their poverty were generous. And it was like lifted up as like a prime example. So examples of giving in troubled times. And then I want to look at examples of giving in all times, not just when things are in trouble. Are there habits that we can develop of giving at all times that make it easy then to give in scarce times? That's where we're headed. Um, let me pray. And as I pray, y'all can pray for me too. God, we ask that you would be present and speak to us. Uh, calm all fears or anxieties or just things that go up when we, when we think about uh, money. 
We ask that you would just use this time to uh, challenge us, and even beyond this Sunday, just in our conversations with friends, uh, families later today when we go home and talk, um, our Midtown communities. Just use this to, to spur on a, a conversation about how to be generous, no matter our financial situation. In Jesus' name, amen. The first example is Macedonia, the Macedonian churches. And you find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he points out the generosity of the Macedonians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability to give. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. First thing you want to point out there, what was the situation for these Macedonians? Severe trial and extreme poverty. This is the place that they were at, that they were a church that was being persecuted. They didn't have many resources. Severe trial. So this is the condition. You might say they were like a Habakkuk situation. Yet in the midst of this severe trial, what happened? There was this overflowing joy. They got this contentment from God, believing probably, like we said, that God's in control and that God cares. And and this overflowing joy meant that what? They were able to give generously. In the midst of that, I love the contrast of those things, that that very situation was when they were able to be the most generous. I see at least two motives here. One motive was that they could care for people. Like they, they said, we are begging you. Like we, he said, they urgently pleaded with the privilege of sharing in the giving to the saints. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later, but contextually what was happening was Paul was actually, he'd gone to all these churches, and then he was trying to raise money as he traveled back through the churches. And he was raising money particularly for the church of, of Jerusalem. There was a church that was in more dire need, even the Macedonia. And there's a little bit of a racial reconciliation thing that was happening that I'll, I'll describe a little bit later. But he was going back to all these churches to try to raise this fund. So this is kind of where, where it comes from. And here we've got this Macedonian church that's in poverty, yet they're completely willing to give. Throughout the book of Habakkuk is one of the things that gets us to a place of contentment is we can get our eyes off of ourselves. Like when we really start thinking that God's got a bigger picture, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, when our eyes can start to focus on other people who are hurting or other things in our world, that's what changes our heart. And it makes us content and it makes us able to give. Even if we're in the midst of pain, we can look to others. It changes us. Second thing I notice about this motive was not just for people. The motive was for God. Listen to the way that Paul describes really what was happening here in the last verse. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. When we give to causes that we care in, to people who are in need, to Midtown Church, it, on, a, on a surface it looks like you're giving to man, but you have to understand you're giving to God. This is why it's part of our worship. We consider giving worship. It's not just a side thing. This is part of the way that we love and worship and serve our God is by giving to people and giving to causes and giving to our church. God receives that as worship. You may be familiar with the phrase when Jesus said that if you've done any of this for the least of these, you've done it unto me. And contextually, that's Jesus telling a parable of the goats and the sheep, and he's describing these people who thought they knew God, but they didn't. And they, they say to him, like, well, when did we ever see you needy? Or when did we ever see you poor? Or when were you ever homeless? Or when were you in prison and we went and visited you? 
He said, I tell you, any time you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. See, when we give to people, when we give to causes, we're giving directly to God. And we have to understand it as part of our worship. It's not something we do out of compulsion. We do out of joy, the overflowing joy of the Macedonian church that they would give. And so you may ask, like, why do we have uh, offering at the end of our service? Like, it's not just because we have bills and we, we need money, so we're passing plates. It truly is a part of our worship. You'll hear Jason or whoever often says it, like, hey, this is an extension of our worship that we're going to do right now. That's not just talk. We're not just saying that, covering up something. Like, we believe that this is worship because when you give to this church, you give to others, you give to causes, you give to the homeless, you're in fact giving to God and it's worship. That's how Paul interpreted every gift that they gave. In fact, I love in the Philippians when he's talking about the Philippian church that gave gifts to him when he was in need. In that passage where he talks about how I could be content in all things, what he says about their gift that they gave him, he says, this was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. That's Philippians 4.19. That's how these gifts are. They're worship to God. And this Macedonian church serves as an example that Paul would point to and say, look, even in poverty, they gave. Let's look at a second one. This is the widow in Luke 21. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow with two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. And these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in all that she has to live on. We don't know too much about this widow, other than she doesn't have very much. And as a widow in that day, you wouldn't have very much. She gives a little that she has, and Jesus notices it. And he says, this is the gift that really counts because he knows our hearts and knows what was really happening. The wealthy were just giving out of their extended wealth. They were giving their leftovers, but this person was bringing everything that they had. I sent out a little Facebook post this week just asking if any friends of mine had any stories of when they've given, like at a time when they didn't have much and what God did with it. I got some, some neat stories. Um, I used to be on staff with Campus Renewal, which is a campus ministry, and one of our staff people in Atlanta relayed this story to me, that she was in the process of raising her supports. So we had to raise, like missionaries, raise up all of our own, own funds from, from our friends and organizations. And so she was in the middle of raising her support, but it was at this conference. She felt like God told her, like, I want you to give $200. There was kind of this offering at this conference that she was at. She only had 250 in her bank account. So she's like, uh, okay, God, I'm not sure about that. She had rent due like a week later. But she felt God do it, and she said, well, I'm going to do it. She just gave $200. She got back home from the conference, and one of her roommates just randomly said, hey, I want to pay your rent this week. And then a few months later, she was fully funded with Campus Renewal. And she looks back at that experience of that giving as something that, that stimulated her for the rest of her own fundraising. I have another friend named Rob Maddox. We both actually came to Christ in high school together. Very, very dear friend. That's up in Pennsylvania. He told the story of he had $2,700 in his savings account. One of the guys at his church was finishing his last semester of seminary, really had a call to be a pastor, was just about finished but didn't have money to pay for his last seminary uh, course. And so my friend just gave $2,700. He was really worried about it because he was trying to save for his daughter's college, but he felt God said, give it, and he gave it. This guy graduated, did well. He's leading his own church now, my friend reported. And then my friend, uh, several years later, his daughter got a $20,000 scholarship to her college. Or I think of someone in this church who related a story to me that, that they were unemployed 
and they were part of a church that in a family gathering, maybe like this or a different context, relayed that we only have $27 in the whole church bank account. And though unemployed, he had 10000 in his savings. He and his wife felt led to give 5000 of it to keep the church afloat and keep it going. This is what we're talking about, sacrificing all that we have and to watch and see what God does with it. In the story, you see at least three things. They're pretty convicting. One, um, but no, he sees, and, and he would actually point out to these disciples, like, see what's happening here? This is what giving's about. Another thing we see is he knows the motives. We don't see it real directly here, but kind of implicit in this is he knows the heart about why they're giving. When others are just giving out of their wealth, they've got plenty to spare, they're not sacrificing, yet here's someone who gives all that they have. And Jesus cares about our motives. He cares deeply about our motives. He knows our heart, and uh, maybe even more convicting, He doesn't only know why we give, He knows why we don't. He knows what's really going on inside of us, so why we're holding on to something, or maybe we're not believing that God's in control, or that God cares, or we're, we're trying to secure something for ourselves. He knows the heart behind it. And what I find most interesting in this passage is Jesus knows what we keep. And there's something about that that's far more significant because he's pointing out that some gave more than this woman, but, but what matters was her heart, knowing why they gave and what she kept. So there's something about giving that Jesus is teaching that's far beyond the actual just numbers of what we give. But, it, but it's the posture of our heart. And I want to say like pastorally, and, the, and I'm not an elder anymore, but our elders would say this. We had a great elder meeting this last week, knowing this topic was coming. So we talked about finances. And, and we care not so much about how much money's coming in as much as we really care about your heart. Like if, if, if things aren't coming in or, or, or giving's not to where we hope that it would be, the bottom line doesn't matter as much as we feel like that's an indication of where our hearts are at. And that's what's concerning because that's what God cares about is our hearts. So in kind of a family gathering, I'll share with you some of the things that were shared at the elder meeting this week. Then, in the last two months, so that we kind of have a, we start our calendar year in September, so we had a first quarter that ended in November, then December, January, so two months into kind of this next quarter, 59% of our partners gave something in the last two months, and 16% of our regular attenders gave something in the last two months. And, and so that was a little alarming to us, like, man, we, we should have more people giving, where are our hearts? Like, what's, what's going on with our hearts? And that's where we're at. And a, a little bit more positive number, but if you look at the whole year from September, so the whole kind of fiscal year, about five months to now, it's uh, 67% of partners give, have given during those five-month period, and 30% of regular attenders have given. Now, of course, we don't know about quarterly gifts, and some people give annual, and we have no idea who gives cash gifts, anything like that. But for us to say that, like, only two-thirds of our partners are, are giving or haven't given at all in the last five months, that's concerning, not just from the standpoint of the church's success, because I'll tell you, we're at like 95% of budget. So we're actually about $8,300 behind where we wanted to be as far as giving. So it's not, not that far off. Our concern is not so much that number as it is the percent of, of people that are giving because we want to foster a community that gives to this cause and this vision of seeing every man, woman, and child I mean, this gospel saturation vision, we should be sacrificing for it. And that's really the concern in our hearts. 
I want to tell you a few things about Midtown's view on giving, just to kind of put, maybe put you at ease or maybe drop some guards. Uh, we, we don't believe like in a strict tithe. We don't believe like that's a New Testament rule. You'll see some of that in some passage I'll look at here in a minute, but that was an Old Testament standard that was set up. So we don't believe that you're supposed to give 10%, and that's the mandate for everybody. We do think it's a good aim. Like, it's a good, healthy, like, aim to try to get there. That would be really, really cool. I'm going to tell my own story about that here shortly. Secondly, we don't think all of your giving should go to Midtown. There's plenty of other causes and things that you care about, things that God's put on your heart, ways that, and things that Midtown can't do or isn't doing yet. And so, man, if it's on your heart, we want you to give externally as well. Third thing I'll say is that we do expect our partners to give. Like, like that's part of when you, when you run through our partnership class, uh, you'll see, I know we just started a new class this morning. When you get to the partnership class at the very end, we say, here's what we expect out of partners. Like, we expect that they'd be in our worship environments, that they would be a part of worship, that they would be involved in a midtown community and or a huddle, that they would serve in the church, and that they would give regularly. No amount, no percentage, we don't know. Only two people in our church know any of that, but we at least know the percentages to know, and and, and that's what we expect from our partners, and we'd hope that a lot of regular attenders would give regularly too. So I lay that before you just as a kind of a family conversation to say, here's where we're at, and pray about it. Pray about what maybe be a next step for you. And following these examples of people who could give, not out of their wealth, but out of their scarcity, that's one thing that I love. And let's look at how you can develop a giving heart out of scarcity it really comes from actually learning to give at all times and setting some patterns in your life. So let's look at an Old Testament and a New Testament example of giving at all times. The first is about first fruits. Let me give you a little hint about first fruits before we read this kind of long passage. So in the Old Testament, there was this festival called the Feast of Weeks. And what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to come make all kinds of sacrifices. Several times a year they had to do this, but this particular one, the Feast of Weeks, they also included their first fruit offering which meant that as you know, I was an agricultural society, right? So all of their stuff, like we talked about in Habakkuk, it was all agricultural. And so what you would do is when the harvest very first started, there would be this feast of weeks, and you were supposed to take a portion of your very first crops and present them to God as an offering, remembering that this very land that He brought you to in the promised land was the land He brought you to. This was His land. These were His crops, and you're giving the very first bit of it to Him. Not the leftovers, because what we typically do in giving is we like to give the leftovers. We think, well, let's, let's kind of let the crops grow up and let's see what happens and see if it's fruitful or not. And at the end, we'll figure out what we can give. But the Old Testament rule for the Israelites was for them to give the first of what they gave. So let me read this somewhat long passage here to give you an idea. This is uh, Deuteronomy 26. When you've entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled it, Take some of the first fruits of all you produce from the soil and the land the Lord your God has given you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for His name and say to the priest in office at that time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come into the land, uh, uh, come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord. Then you shall declare before the Lord, so this is like a prayer they're supposed to pray, my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt and with a few people lived there and then became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, our God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and now I bring the first fruits 
of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place in a basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing in among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. When you finish setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you should give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Get this idea of first fruits. It was the very first things that they produced that they were supposed to give to God. I was asking Jake a little bit about this this week, like, hey, how have you experienced kind of first fruits giving? And he described a time when they, they first adopted Enoch. And so Enoch comes back from Uganda, and he said they had $200 in the account. They literally spent every last thing that they had minus $200. So when they get back to America, they're, Jake's got a paycheck coming in about a week, but he says he remembers very distinctly, like going to the grocery store and thinking, all right, we've got a week. We've got to make sure that we don't spend $200. Nothing bounces until we get paid again. I said, well, how did you, how did you practice first fruits in that type of situation? He said, to tell you the truth, it was really hard. Like, me and Krista talked about it. We talked about maybe stopping our giving to the church that they were a part of at the time. He said, I won't lie. He said, I had the webpage open several times, and we were like a click away from like, stop, <laughs> stop giving just for a time. But he said, in the end, we just came back to this first fruits and said, no, we're going to trust God. This is a statement of our faith that we believe that God's going to provide for us as he already has. And if you notice in this passage what they're supposed to do when they present it, they're supposed to remember that everything they have is from God, right? That long prayer that you saw was them recounting their history from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to now we're in this land that God's given us, set free from the Egyptians. And this land promised to us, flowing with milk and honey, God gave it to us. Their day land would be like our day job. And so it would be very similar to us saying, God, I come to you and I'm thanking you that you provided this job for me. Like all I have is yours and, and, and this money that you've given me. Thank you so much. And I'm presenting a portion of it back to you as my first fruits. And if you'll notice where it went, it went to the Levites and to the poor. So if you know a little bit about the history, when God let them into the land, of the, the holy land, into the promised land, they divided up into 12 properties. But the Levites, one of the tribes, were not actually given land. They were, they were told that God would be their inheritance. And so the Levites were scattered among all the other tribes, serving as ministers. So they were the ones that took in these offerings, and they did the worship. And they, they were the ones who actually ate the first fruit. <laughs> so when you guys brought stuff into them, they then would, that would be the food that they would eat and that they would distribute to the poor. And so in a very real way, that's kind of what we do as a church. When you guys contribute to the church, our staff get paid. So thank you. So thanks a lot. Uh, all of us, thank you. Uh, a church this small, having as many staff as we have is extremely rare, but it's only done so because of your generosity. And then they would take that and then distribute it equally to the poor, like it said, the fatherless, the foreigner, the, the widow, the poor, the homeless, would then also find refuge and be given the, given the resources that were given at the offering. That's how the Old Testament offering worked. Now, in the New Testament, there's something really interesting that happens. So when Paul, when they first start taking the gospel to the Gentiles, there's kind of a controversy. They're like, well, is the gospel really meant to go to the Gentiles? And if so, what do they have to do? What rules do they have to follow? Or how can they be distinctly Christian but not Jewish? And so it was a big controversy at that time. In Acts chapter 15, you'll find that all the leaders come together to talk about it. And Barnab or Paul is later telling the story in Galatians chapter 2. And when he's telling the story in Galatians chapter 2, he says, we were commissioned to go to the Gentiles. All they asked was that, they that we remember the poor. So when we went out to go be missionaries in all these places, they asked that we would remember 
to raise funds for the poor among the sometimes more wealthy Gentiles. And so when we get back now, think back to 2 Corinthians, the first passage we looked at. This is what Paul was doing. He was raising funds. He'd started all these different churches, and he's making his way back through these churches. He's sending them letters in advance and saying, hey, I want you guys to start contributing to the need of the Jerusalem church. What's super cool about it, part of it was like a huge unity reconciliation statement. He was trying to show that we're one church, and we're one church because we're raising money from one church to give to another, and that's the pattern that you see throughout the New Testament. And so in 2 Corinthians, when he's calling them to do it, what he's really calling them to do, he's pointing, remember he pointed to the Macedonians, he's like, look at the way these guys did it. I'm coming, you guys better have the money ready. What he was really doing is he's saying, hey, remember 1 Corinthians? I wrote you guys a letter about this already, and I told you how to do it. So first fruits, let's look at this passage. This is first days. 1 Corinthians 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come to make collections, uh, when I come, no collections will have to be made. So we've got first fruits. In the New Testament, we have this idea of first days. Like, take what you get, and on the very first day, you start setting stuff aside. And I guess they meant, like, do that every single week, and whenever I come, you'll have something set up. This is the same principle in the New Testament was that we would just give of our first fruits to God. This is something I believe that God really honors, and it's something that God wants us to do. I know in our day it looks a little bit different. Um, we don't have, uh, many of you guys don't pay with uh, cash or coins. You don't have a bank that you're setting stuff aside for, or maybe you can do it internally within your own bank. Uh, I know it looks different for us when so many of us give online and maybe don't give on a Sunday, so you don't just give on the first day of the week like a Sunday. But the principle's the same. Like, how do you take the first of what God's given you and give it? Like, he instructed, it says here, the Galatian churches to do this. We know he instructed the Corinthian churches to do this. This was the instruction, to give of your first fruits. I know I, I have a, a pet-sitting business on the side, uh, mostly just to meet neighbors and make a little extra money. And I've got, like, no one pays me in cash anymore or with checks. It's just all PayPal. So that's like the society we live in, right? So it's like, well, how do I translate this so I made a new millennial version of this Bible verse right here, right? Ready? So here's 1 Corinthians 16. You might, you might write it this way. Now about giving to our church, this is how we think, non-check writing, cashless, electronic deposit, payroll, online banking, church-going people should do. Pick a day of the week, right after you've been paid by electronic deposit. Set aside a portion of your pay according to your electronic deposit. Then we won't need to come around asking for it each month. So... <laughs> Pretty good interpretation. There's a lot, of, a lot of Greek. I did a lot of work this week on that. Um, but that's the principle, right? You think about what you have, and you'd pray, and you would actually set aside stuff. And this is the big difference. Not your leftovers, but your first fruits. That's showing your contentment. Man, God, I believe you're in control, and I believe you care, and I'm giving you this from the front, trusting that you'll provide on the back end. That's first fruits giving. I know for me, it came home really powerful. Back in 1991, I was a freshman at UT. I went to Dallas Winter Conference, which I know some of you students got to go to Winter Conferences last year. They had it way back then in 1991. And I heard a guy named Tom Nelson give a talk. And it, like, there's thousands of college students. And then he gets up there to the front. And he's like, hey, guys, tonight we're going to talk about money. And I'm like, dude, this is college students. What do you mean? Like, why are you talking about money? And he said, here's why. He went on to his passage, but he went to say that if you can establish habits of giving now 
in your scarcity, when you don't have very much, you'll do it for the rest of your life. But it's a lie if you think you're all of a sudden later in life, you're going to do it. Because you think, well, well, maybe when I get to this point, or maybe when I pay this off, or maybe when I get this job or this promotion. And all you do is just kick the can down the road and keep making excuses for yourself. And the fact is it's so much harder to give when you have more money. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's very true. The more you have, the harder it is to give. Whereas if you can give in your scarcity, like I did, starting that time after hearing that message, I said, okay, I'm going to start giving 10%. And, and truthfully, I didn't have a job. I, I worked as a, at the Harden House at, at UT serving the, the, the girls' food at the dorm there. Didn't get paid for it. Got my meals for free, so that was good. Um, that was my pay. But I knew my parents gave me a, a stipend. Like, here's kind of your money you can live on besides your bills. And so I said, well, that's that counts as my pay, and I'm going to start giving 10% of it. And I've just done that forever, the rest of my life. Here's how old this was. Back then, there was uh, not CDs, not podcasts. These were tape cassettes. <laughs> and so I was so impressed by that message that I got Tom Nelson's tape cassette, and I kept it with me, and I listened to it every couple years. And really, I kept it for one reason. So Brenda and I start dating, and I'm like, if she doesn't believe like I do, this is not going any further. And so I gave her this tape as like a litmus test to say, hey, why don't you listen to this and tell me what you think? And so when she listened to it, it's like, oh, yeah, I do that too. I was like, great, we can keep going. <clears throat> that was, I'm not joking, this was like a couple months into our relationship. Like, this is early. Like, you got to get this stuff out of the way, man. This is too important. But that's the way that, that God has at least put on my heart to give. It can be different for every one of you. But what I want to say is, truthfully, if you can't give out of your scarcity, you're not going to give out of your wealth. And so I would challenge you all, like if we look back at those percentages I mentioned, 67% of partners giving uh, since we started this annual fiscal year, 30% of regular attenders, man, if that just bumped up a bit, if we all just took a, a next step of faith, holy moly, we, we would, we'd be way down the road because it wouldn't take very much. And so the challenge is for you guys to do that and to pray about it freely. There's one last verse that I'd like to show that I really love, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Proverbs you have to read and interpret a little bit carefully because sometimes there's promises that aren't necessarily promises. Um, it's not saying health, wealth, like if you give and God will give you 10 times as much, you know, it's not like that. I told you a few stories where God does do that sometimes and it's really cool, but I didn't tell you a couple other stories that came in where people did it and the only work that happened was in their heart and nothing came through for them or the person they gave to. That happens too. But what I love about this promise is not so much a promise of prosperity, but it, it, to me it's a promise of contentment of your heart. Like if you can get to a spot where you can give out of scarcity it's not so much that you're going to have more, though you might. You'll be surprised. But what happens is your heart toward what you want changes. And so really, it's a, it's a mentality of scarcity, that when you're holding on to stuff, you're always thinking that there's just not enough. But if you can get to that, to that place where you start to give, even out of your scarcity, you'll start to recognize a freedom that comes that's like, oh, I don't need so much. I don't need all those things. And in that sense, your vats are filled to overflowing. Your barns are completely filled up because your heart's changed and you just don't want as much because you're so excited about what you're giving toward. I've seen that 100% true in my life and, and, and many more of you that I know that are way more generous uh, than I am. And so I want to leave you with that as we close Habakkuk to think about that. 
But as we take communion, I want to draw us to one more thing, because as Paul first pointed to the Macedonian church, right? Look at these guys. These guys are the example. They gave out of their scarcity. But then he really quickly turns it to saying, you know who the real example is? The real example is Christ, because his life was giving out of scarcity. In fact, that very, very same passage, 2 Corinthians 8, he later writes in verse 8 and 9, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, but more so, you'll see Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We don't want to look just to the Macedonians. We don't want to look just to the widow. We want to look to Christ as our example of one who would empty all he has and accomplish the greatest good. And so as you take communion, I want you to reflect on the richness of the body of Christ that he would give himself for you, that he would be made poor so that you could be made spiritually rich. And I want you to also, in a real similar way that the first fruits offering was, remember that long prayer? Just as you take it, say, God, I thank you that you've given me a job. You've given me work. You've brought me to to have whatever I have, whether it's great or little. It's all from God. Let's remember, let's, let's remember Christ. Let's remember his provision. As we take communion, we invite everyone who has put their faith in Christ to, to come down to the front or to go to the back and receive communion, particularly during the first part of the song, though you could go during any of the songs of worship that we have here. Um, let me pray for us. And let's celebrate. Thanks, Lord, for, for dying for us. We remember you. We remember that all we have is from you. Let this time of worship just be filled with your spirit. Speak to us and lead us. Even if some here would call, and even now, think about what are their first fruits and what do they want to do as their first fruits. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come and to lead and guide us as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.